Hi everyone, it's Bud, and welcome to the latest episode of Before the Cheering Started, all about the journey to success. No hyperbole necessary here. Nick Lowe's fans love him, and they are incredibly devoted to the British musician for a variety of reasons. There are the songs that hit the charts in the late 70s and 80s for Nick and others, like Cruel to be Kind, and a personal favorite, I Knew the Bride When She Used to Rock and Roll. There's his work as a producer, most notably on those great early Elvis Costello albums. But I think the love affair with Nick Lowe is especially deep because of the second chapter he crafted when his career was not going so well in the late 80s and early 90s, writing more songs, especially with the influence of his beloved Americana and country music, and playing some of his older songs in stripped-down versions. The love affair is felt most tangibly when he performs live, and many in his audience have come to see him again and again and again. He's out on the road again in November, doing shows all over the United States. A comedian, a great comedian who I know, uh, once told me, or recently told me, and he's in his early 80s now, um, he told me that now when he does a show, there's a, there's a shared warmth between him and the crowd, uh, the audience, uh, because he's been doing it for so long. Whereas earlier in his career as a comedian, there's that, you know, little bit of an angst there, a little bit of the, oh, I got a kill tonight, that sort, sort of thing. You're still out doing it beautifully. When you approach a show now, do you get a different sense of a vibe in the room and what it means for you as it compared to what it was when you were first starting out? Or is there a, a thread that runs through those shows all these years later? Wow, that's 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 um, a very interesting question right off the bat there. Um, Yes, I, I suppose I've never thought about it actually, but I, I, uh, I, I, I thought what it was. Uh, my case was just um, experience. You know, you just know how to do it. You know, and uh, so you don't antagonise the crowd anymore like you once used to. Um, uh, no, you know, not intentionally, but um, you don't get on their nerves. But I suppose you're right. Yes, people don't come along for for nothing. I suppose I, I still think that they really are in there to get out of the rain. You know, I, I suppose I still think think that. Um, I'm always sort of faintly surprised if it's a good crowd. And but you're you, you're right. They don't come for nothing. And um, and I think I I think uh, I, I do feel that that uh, there's a there's a sort of a warmth there that. Where you can re- just totally relax, you know, instead of just being on edge and say, "Well, have I got them yet? Have I, you know, do they um, uh, do they not like that one?" Or you know, that all those sort of uh, things that I used to think about a lot, but um, but don't now so much. So now, when you play a song, and even a relatively new song that you know your fans are, are going to know, or even an old song that maybe fans from you know, a little bit older. No, is there, there, there is, or is not that moment of, will, will this go over? Well, the, the thing is that I, because I've, I have worked really uh, so much in the United States, I have an audience there, which is uh, uh, over there, which is really sort of fantastic. It's what I set out to, to try and find um, in the, 
I suppose sometime in the 1980s it's a well it's a well documented um, story you know about how I decided to sort of reinvent myself you know represent myself and write for a, this theory I had and and um, and it has actually worked out. I, I did. I thought at the time that it might not work out, but it has worked out because one of the things I thought, if that if I was right about my, this theory, I'd be able to avoid playing to uh, to the um, to the same old faces. God bless them. God bless mm-hmm. them. You know. But I I I've got a sort of a horror of playing to a rows of old people. You know who have who have stuck with me sort of through a, quite a lot of thin <laughs> not much <laughs> thick. um uh and uh and a gamely coming out again and i thought well if i get this right um i'll be able to attract a younger audience as well not you know not i don't mean screaming teenagers or anything like that but people in their 20s 30s that's that's young you know for me and it will be Altogether, a much funner evening, much, uh, much more. Um, they'll get a, get a kick out of each other, you know. Whereas over here in this country, I'm afraid it's like the the aforementioned. Maybe not in London, where they're a little more sort of, well, obviously a bit more cosmopolitan, you know. But but um, if I go to a, a city outside London, because I've hardly ever play, I hardly ever play here, because mainly due to lack of interest. Um, it's my totally my own fault. <laughs> if I go out out of London and do and do a show, which I do do from time to time, they really do think that you're, you know, just some old one hit wonder, you know, it's, who was on the TV once. They're, they're big, you know. They, ju- they they tend to judge people by how often they're on the t- on TV. That's really interesting because I've talked to musicians here. Primarily, uh, like acoustic musicians who have talked about, oh, um, here for them they have the "what have you done for me lately" experience, but then they go to Great Britain and they go to Europe, and people remember and are respectful of that, but also respectful of hearing a song that came after you know nineteen eighty seven, for example. Mm. Mm. Yes. It's the grass always greener, isn't it? You know, right. Yeah. So the name of the podcast is before the cheering started, and we'll get to some of those early years. But I'm curious, in your case, when you kind of reinvented yourself and started going out and had the album in the early '90s and started going out with, for want of a better term, kind of a stripped-down version of uh, things, of uh, music. Uh, how difficult was that? Were there moments of uh, was there doubt about whether it was going to work? Uh, was there someone who was particularly influential in your life who said, no, if you, you've got this and this is going to be a great second act for one of a better term. What do you, you, you mean for the, uh, you mean re- really the, the second act you're talking about that, that, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, <clears throat> there was a lot of doubt. Yes, because I, uh, it was sort of prompted by the, the fact that I had in the classic cliche uh, sense, you know, uh, um, crashed and burned, really. You know, I was drinking too much and taking all kinds of drugs and things like that. And it was because I was, I was, um, I, I was an unhappy man. You know, I didn't. I felt that I wasn't making good records. I wasn't writing very good songs. And also, I knew that my time was up as a pop star. 
and I I sort of wandered into pop stardom. I never really sought sought it particularly. I, when I was a kid, very very young, starting out, that's all I wanted to be was famous, and uh, and the arty farty stuff came later. You know that <laughs> initially I didn't care. I couldn't care less about that. I wanted to get girlfriends and like lots many others. The arty farty stuff. That's an old musical technical term, right? The arty farty stuff, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> I suppose it is. Yeah. Yeah. I think we all know what we mean by that. Of course, um, of course. That was my initial um, aim, I, and I, I loved pop music. You know, I was crazy about it, and uh, and I thought I was a bit of an expert on it as well. I'd been a mod, you know, in the in the uh, that tribe, you know, that was along in the sixties. So. I thought I knew a lot about R&B and cool music, you know, as well. In fact, I didn't. You know, it took me going to joining a band and going to France and Germany. Some of those discos there, they played the wildest, most fantastic stuff. And so I, I realized I had a lot to a lot to learn. And one of the things I had a lot to I'm sorry, I'm going back to before the re. That's uh, OK. Go. go. Uh, uh, one of the things I had to uh, learn, I realized, was to write songs because I thought, after a while, our audience at that time of the band I was in, there was a lot of screaming girls. Now we weren't we weren't uh, not screaming, squealing. I think is probably better. Slightly <laughs> reduced. Uh, um, and uh, uh, and we were we were a real pop group at the time, and we were no oil paintings. Not, none of us were oil paintings at all, but. Because we had a guitar strapped round our neck, we used to get these spotty kids, you know, who used to squeal and hang around the the van and write all over the van and everything. And um, and they also they had sort of scowling boyfriends in the background quite often who uh, who who wanted to let down the, our tires and things like that and bash us up, you know. So it was all a bit of a nuisance. And at that time, the 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 um, the, the Beatles had invented, you know, progressive rock, you know, and so the pop thing, pop world was splitting. It was what they called over here the college college uh, music, which right. was sort of fancier, you know, had a bit of a, more of a blues edge. And that's what we wanted to get into because the girls were cooler, the gigs were cooler, everything was cooler, the, the scene we were in. And I thought, well, the only way you're going to do that, pal, is if you learn to write songs. Because mm -hmm. what we were doing was just singing this rubbish, was which was handed to us, and we weren't even playing on our records. You know, that was the that was always all session guys. That's why they sounded so great, because <laughs> ah. we weren't playing on them. But nonetheless, you know, um, uh, I, I realised that's what I had to do. I'm always fascinated, and I'm a bit of an Anglophile, and I'm always fascinated talking to um, musicians who grew up in Great Britain, especially of uh, uh, your generation, maybe even a little bit older, um, Graham Nash comes to mind, uh, of having, especially as an American, having this, the sensitivity to ask about what it was like growing up in post-war England, uh, and, you know, the you know, the famous line of the song, uh, what, what can a poor boy do except to sing in a rock and roll band? But for you growing up, as I understand it, on army bases in outside of Great Britain, 
how did that uh, affect your your approach to music? Uh, and also, what kind of music were you listening to when you were on those army bases because of your father's work? Correct. Yes, he was in the air force. Yes, it was same same sort of thing. He was he was in the RAF. Um, well, it was my mother was the big influence uh, on me. She was uh, she'd come from a um, a show business family, in fact, and uh, as was the case of vaudeville. Really, her fo- her parents were all in vaudeville. And uh, or music hall as they called it here, right. and um, she was a pretty good singer, and actually would have probably gone into the business, I think, but for the war, and um, and like so many people, she met my um, she met my dad during the war. She was in the women's air force, the WAF as they uh, called it, and um, he was a pilot, and and came from I suppose where you could say he was a bit posher than my than my dear mama mm-hmm. and um but nonetheless you know it was that that was when the classes first well that was the first world war was when classically when the 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 lower classes got a look at the toffs you know they could see them close up in the trenches you know they could see what a gentleman a supposed gentleman sounded like and how you know how they talked how they were and everything and my grandfather on my father's side was certainly one of those uh, soldiers keeping an eye on the officers because when he survived the First World War, he suddenly transformed from being um, uh, a sergeant. He was suddenly came out from the war and suddenly he was major low and uh, and, and had transformed himself into an officer. He, he spoke w- with a different accent mm-hmm. and he, he knew the right clothes to get. He found himself a tailor who uh, could imi- do a very good imitation of a Savile Row suit, you know, and knew and knew that it was understated. You know, he was a very, very sn- snappy dresser in that understated way. And he trained himself to do it. In, um, but in the Second World War, that sort of happened again, you know, and people like my father, who was sort of a bit posher, you know, um, met my mum, who was sort of quite common, I'm using shorthand words here. Yeah. But my mother transformed herself into an officer's wife. You know, she trained, she uh, taught herself to speak differently and um, figured out what to do and to better yourself. That was the way the people used to say it. Oh, they bettered themselves, you know. And also, my father had never met anyone in show business. He was he was completely baffled by the whole thing. He was a real man's man, you know, and didn't know about you know, homosexuals or anything like that. You know, it was a completely foreign world to him. You know, and uh, showbiz folk. You know, didn't know anything about. It. So it was a it was a meeting of the two worlds colliding somewhat. But my mother was a great influence on me. She had she played me. She had um, we had a radiogram at, at home. That was a real middle class uh, piece of equipment, which a lot of your um, listeners and viewers won't uh, maybe don't know what it is it's a big big piece of furniture with a radio in it a record player and a place to put your records like a sort of rack and it used to sit like a like a piece of chippendale furniture in the uh, in the corner of the sitting room door sliding doors that went back you know it was a sort of um, elegant piece of furniture well slightly 
slightly tacky actually but anyway, we had one of those what music did you hear in the house well she had all the she had quality quality 50s music a lot of good singers sinatra nat king cole um uh, uh peggy lee with doris day who i i love doris day and, and and peggy i loved all of it actually i loved all of it and um, a lot of show um show sound soundtracks you know uh South Pacific, Anything Goes, My Fair Lady, a little bit later on. And I devoured this stuff. My father, rather bizarrely, who I, I never actually saw him play a record, but he uh, he had acquired some pretty good jazz stuff as well. Kenny Clark and Sidney Bechet and um, people like that. Glenn Miller, I guess they, get, I, I, they had some of that as well. Um, but uh, I, I devoured the whole lot. Um, but I'm, very weirdly, my mother had in her collection of records, there was only a handful, 20 or 30 records, I suppose, she had two 10-inch albums by this fellow called Tennessee Ernie Ford. And it's the first time I ever heard country music, really. And, uh, and I listened to this stuff. Man, I thought it was so great. I loved everything about it. I loved his voice of his songs. I loved the sound of it. And the fact that I could hear in the music this jazz element, because the, the instruments, play, they played a lot of jazz stuff. They were country players. Mm -hmm. I didn't know then that it came as well. It wasn't from Nashville. It was from um, California. And it, and it was because of the war, you know, where the war, work, a lot of workers from the south moved up to California to build planes and uh, ships and mm -hmm. And uh, they brought this jazz element. They, they found this jazz element in California. And, it, it made, well, Bob Wills was doing it before that, of course. As you get older, is there a specific conversation with your folks of, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, I want to do music. Is that an actual conversation at a particular time? Or is it a little more subtle than that? Well... Uh, my, my mother used to encourage me, you know, a lot because I used to sing with her. She, we used to sing harmonies together and she taught me to play the guitar. She taught me two or three chords on the guitar, you know. And, and uh, but it was really, you know, don't think about going into show business, my boy. <laughs> it's, it, it's a mugs game, you know, but but I was. I, I was crazy about it. The only other thing I wanted to be was a journalist and that was uh, because I was good at English, but the only other thing I was any good at at school was English. Um, and uh, and I, 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 um, I used to see these guys, because we were living abroad at the time, living in the Middle East, and I used to see, um, uh, it was a time of the Suez crisis. I don't know if you know that. So 1956. Yes, that's co quite correct. And my dad was stationed in Amman, RAF Amman. And um, and at that time, a lot of British war correspondents, you know, would, were, were coming out. And because he was quite a high ranking, they used to stay with us and he used to fix it. So they got the right passes and things like that. But I used to sit up when they used to come to the house, these guys, and they used to sit around drinking. You know, my dad was very sociable, you know, and they used to sit around drinking. And I just loved these guys. They talked to me like I was grown up, you know, and I liked the way they smoked. 
I like the clothes they wore. You know, they wore these cool kind of safari jackets and things, you know, and, and the way, the easy way they had of talking to each other. I thought I'd like to be one of those guys. And I got a job actually on a paper, but I realized pretty soon that I just didn't have what it took. You know, I wanted to be one of these guys and I was doing the late duty chemists and reviewing the of, of Walt Disney film that had come out. You know, it was, I was, it was a local paper, you know, I realized I just didn't have what it took. And then a school friend called me up and said, he'd, he'd gone into the music business and he said, we're, we're chucking our bass player out. I'd been in a school band with him. He said, we're, 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 we want need a new bass player. Do you want to come and join our group? And, and they had a record deal and everything. I was, I packed my job in and off I went. Uh, before we get to uh, the, the, the first chapters of the music business, uh, I read a story and perhaps it's all even true, which would be great. Um, it's always good when the stories are true about when you were uh, working for that suburban paper and you went off to cover some a movie. I think it was a Disney movie. And what was the result? You fell asleep during the oh, movie? Or? Oh, oh, I know what you mean. Yes, they, um, yes I got a... Uh, in fact, it was the... the, the that was the movie, yeah. The the sub-editor said to me, uh, um, oh, he, he, I saw him throwing the, the invitation, the press invitation of the movie into the bin. And I said, oh, I'll do it, I'll do it. And I pulled it, he said, all right, go on. So I, I um, and I called my sister up, who I wanted to impress. I, an old, I've got, I have an older sister. And I said, oh, I've got a, I said, you know, I was eight, 17, 18, and I was talking to her like I was, some big time film critics. Oh, I've got to go and see this uh, film. It's tiresome. You know, do you want to come with me? You know, she said, when, when is it? And I said, well, actually it's nine o'clock, nine o'clock in the morning, you know, <laughs> and uh, at a hotel at a, um, cinema in the West end. Anyway, yes, we went, we, I, I met her there and the, uh, the press person plied us with gin and tonic. As soon as we, <laughs> I'd never had a gin and tonic in my life. And I had about four, got completely stoned and uh and uh, the next thing i knew we sat we were ushered in to watch it was a, i think it was a herbie film you know about the car okay the volkswagen you know talking car or something like that anyway uh, uh the next thing i know i was on my own in the in the theater being prodded awake by an uh, irate you know uh, employee told to get out you know and um so anyway, I did, did my best to write the film up. So basically, you had seen the absolute glamour of journalism in that moment, <laughs> and uh, and you chose you chose screaming girls over the glamour of being woken <laughs> up by a, a cinema employee. Well, Hard to I believe. Suppose, I suppose I did. Yeah. I yeah. I did. yeah. So in those early years, is in the music business, is it? Oh, this is just great. I mean, I'm, I'm making music. We're we're doing the thing as young guys in the music business. Or were there ever? First of all, did you ever have to have like other jobs just to kind of you know make the rent? And second of all, are there are there are moments where you think about a plan B, even as you started in the music business? Mm, yeah. No, we ne we never used to never never had an another job. We never had to do that. I mean, we didn't have any money, but somehow it was easy to to live then and to, to start with uh, when i left home I, I um at, at my old school friend's invitation brinsley schwartz his name was mm -hmm. and uh 
we lived I, I lived with his family and um and as did the one of the other men other members of the group and uh, so that so that took care of the rent there and then after that well, after they threw me out <laughs> well, only, you know it was only fair that they did but i found a flat with a whole lot of other sort of hippies you know really and um uh and the living was just easy then in, in the late 60s it, it, everything seemed affordable you know we were all kind of broke so no problem you know if you uh hmm. i remember I, I, I a friend of mine bought bought me a jacket from he bought from a thrift store and um he uh he said oh, i saw this jacket thought it would fit you and it was uh he, he gave it to me and i remember that I put my hand in the pocket and pulled out 10, 10 shilling notes, as that was. That's half a pound, you know. Mm -hmm. So that's five pounds. Five pounds is in the pocket of this jacket, uh, which was a, a, a fortune. I, mean, I remember that, that how, um, how delighted we were. We all went out and had an Indian, you know, we had an Indian meal for about four or five of us, you know. And, <laughs> Into the pub, you know, had a few few pints. You know, it was, it was, it was a wonderful time. I loved it. That was a great jacket. Yeah, yeah it sure that's was. a great jacket. I would imagine, like, if you got clothing after that in a more maybe conventional way, like, still kind of check the pockets just to yeah. maybe, maybe. <laughs> you never know. Yeah, that's right. You know, maybe luck will strike twice. So is the idea of you both being a musician and a producer, for which you are really well known and Obviously, the early Elvis Costello albums uh, get the most attention, but not just those albums. Is that something that you kind of you had a, some notion of, oh, I'd like to do both of these? Or was it much more coincidental than that? It was quite, it was quite a bit more coincidental. Uh, uh, again, in those days, uh, you you anyone could be a record producer. All you had to do was to say, I am, you know, I am a record producer. <laughs> And get somebody to believe you, <laughs> and it was a, that was that was really a big part of it. Was you had to have some uh, front, as we say um, over here, uh, which means um, enthusiasm and a sort of zest, you know, to, to get people going, and uh, and a, slight, a bit of cheek, you know. I never really learned how to twiddle knobs myself. I wasn't really that interested in, in knob twiddling myself, but I was um, I was very good at telling people who did know how to twiddle knobs what how I wanted it to sound and um, the effect I wanted to achieve. And the rest of it I found was getting the musicians to believe they could be better than they thought they were. And uh, and and to g them up, you know, to get them going. I found I was really pretty good at that, but it is kind of hit and miss. You know, uh, and one of the reasons I stopped producing in the 1980s was there was a sort of seismic shift in the way uh, records were made because um, technology advanced so quickly that um, what I'd been brought up um, with with tape you know and all everything was analog and all the rest of it uh, suddenly almost overnight digital came in and i had no idea how to make it work you know it was um 
uh, it seems so much easier with the analog stuff because you could you could sort of mistreat it a bit and and make it do stuff whereas the digital stuff won't be mistreated you know it's it's very clean and uh, and uh, also uh, it doesn't break down you know really you know <laughs> mm. uh, so so if you uh, if if the group if the group wasn't in a very good mood or uh, you couldn't get get anything out of them in the in the uh, in the uh, analog days you could just tell the record company you know well they, you know sorry you know we had a bit of a breakdown and uh, and the boys were a bit hungover you know couldn't get it together and it was oh all right then we'll try again tomorrow you know but when the when digital came in suddenly it became much stricter you know so what do you mean the boys don't feel like it you know? <laughs> and uh, they what do you mean they weren't uh, you know, on the ball here, and um, and also with remixes and uh, things that the the record company people could order up a remix because all you do is go back in, press a few buttons, up comes the the one that you you delivered to them, and you make some alterations to it. How much of being a producer, and we'll talk specifically about those early Elvis albums. How much of being a producer is being part psychologist? Oh, well, quite a lot of that. Yes, there was a. I, I used to quite enjoy that as well. The, the how I used to describe it was was fun, with a band, say, um, I, and I, I produced a lot of a lot of bands. You you find where the power lay, and it might not be with the glamorous lead singer, you know, who has his name uh, his face on the front of all the magazines of that week, you know, and everyone wants to get quotes from. It might not be him. It might. So he might be a bit dim, you know. The but the guy to look for is that is the sulky bass player in the who doesn't say much, who's uh, you know just sort of scowling at you in the corner. He he's the guy to get friendly with because he is the one that they all look to, you know, to uh, to say yay or nay about things. So you'd work on him a bit, and and uh, other things like making making the band think that your idea was their idea. Uh, um, so when they when they when they suddenly say, well, maybe we should do this, and it's something that you suggested about half an hour before, and you go, well, do what? You know, <laughs> what a great idea! Well, we can try it. I mean, I don't think it's going to work, but we'll try it. We'll try it. You know, and then of course it would work. <laughs> now, is that something that you kind of came upon? on your own or is there someone who had done production work who actually sat you down and say here's some here's some little nuggets that are going to help um that that particular thing was something i found on my own but i really did get taught well by my um what chap who came on to became a partner you know we have we came we came sorry we became partners Dave Edmonds, we had a band sure. called Rockpile, and, and uh, I watched Dave like a hawk. He was fantastic in the studio, but he was a loner. You know, he didn't really, uh, he did produce other people, but I, I I wasn't interested in making records on my own. Like he would sit and do everything. He, you know, sit at the desk, play the guitar, play the drums, play the, you know. And then we had another guy who produced, um, he was the first producer I ever ran across. He was an American from from a new uh, from New York, 
Um, oh my gosh, let me just think what his name was. I can't remember now, but he, I might remember it in a second. He, he, he um, unfortunately, the, the stuff he produced, we were about to break up at that time. So it wasn't, we weren't great, you know, but I remember him one day saying to me, um, I was going out to put, to sing a vocal on, a, on one of my songs. And I was just going out of the door and he stopped me and he took me aside and he said, um, he, he had this funny high voice uh, and he said, now listen, Nick, I want you to remember that this guy is at his wit's end. And I, I looked at him and said, what? He was talking about the character in the song. He said, this guy has had enough. He, and especially, you know what he says? And he brought out the lyrics. He brought it out of his pocket. He brought the lyrics that he'd written down. And he pointed out to me this lyric that I'd, I'd written. Um, he said, especially when it comes to this, uh, this baby, when he says, please don't go out or please, you know, don't. I want you to sound like there. And he started talking to me. But I'd never had anyone talk to me like that about about performing, you know, performing on a record. We just went out and did it. And I thought this was fantastic, taking it seriously like that. So I used to do that as well to to um, to uh, uh, to uh, to the artists that I produced. I would take their I would take them seriously, you know, about their about their lyrics and uh, and try and help them make it conversational. You know, I'd, I'd make suggestions so that it sounded like don't you know take you can take that word out. You know, it's getting in the way. You don't need it. It's not only is it bad English. But it's cluttering up the groove as well. So get rid of that, and and here's a better word, you know. And and without walking all over their thing, you know, if you could get them to to believe that you were actually wanted them to to bring it out, you know. Right. That everybody I, I everybody pulling in the, everybody pulling in the same direction. Yes, yes, and and taking it taking it seriously because up right. to then no one took lyrics very seriously except Bob Dylan or someone like that but not at our level <laughs> Nick Lowe the record company Yep Rock is reissuing a 10th anniversary edition of Nick's holiday album Quality Street this fall for information on tour dates go to nicklow.com there's plenty more to discuss with Nick Lowe like the story behind one of his greatest and most impactful songs What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding? So yes, there will be a part two to my conversation with Nick Lowe on the next episode. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing, that's me as well. No extra charge. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on the journey. Mm-hmm.